I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded way back in the fall of 1998, shortly before Carthage College hosted an amazing concert that celebrated the 100th anniversary of the birth of one of America's greatest musical geniuses, George Gershwin. The anniversary of George Gershwin's untimely death in 1937 was just this past weekend, the 11th of July. We remember him today by replaying this memorable conversation that features someone who became a very familiar voice over the airwaves of WGTD as longtime host of Saturday Night Bandstand, Sam Chell. Familiar music by George Gershwin is his An American in Paris, and in Gershwin's original version for uh, two pianos. Of course, the piece eventually ended up as an orchestral piece and one of George Gershwin's biggest hits, if you will. And uh, this two piano version of An American in Paris is one of the pieces that is going to be featured this Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock in a special gala concert uh, in Siebert Chapel on the campus of Carthage College, celebrating George Gershwin's 100th birthday, which is uh, tomorrow, Saturday, the 26th of September. The 100th birthday gala is Sunday afternoon, 4 o'clock, and absolutely free and open to the public. It's a concert that will feature nearly all of the choral groups of Carthage College, including the Carthage Choir and the Carthage Community Chorus. And uh, as a special guest on that concert, uh, the music department is uh, delighted to welcome uh, a member of the English faculty at Carthage College, Sam Chell, who is a, a marvelous jazz pianist that I'm sure a lot of you have uh, enjoyed in various venues around southeastern Wisconsin. And uh, he will be along as well on Sunday afternoon to play uh, three different uh, Gershwin tunes. And he is with us on the morning show today to uh, talk about his own music career and uh, about his love of the music of George Gershwin. Sam Chell, we are delighted to have you back on the morning show. Very glad to be here, Greg. Sam, I just about uh, suffered, I don't know, a heart heart seizure or something when you mentioned that you had been here before, but it hadn't been since the time of Art Jones, my predecessor as fine arts director here. So that means it's been 12 years since you've been on the morning show, and I'm, uh, I'm really sorry about that. I've batted around the idea for a long time of having you here, and I'm glad you're your, your schedule permits uh, this visit today. It's nice to renew acquaintances. All right. Well, tell us, first of all, how long you have been um, such a 
a wonderfully gifted um, jazz pianist. Is that something that dates back uh, very early in your childhood? Not exactly. Um, I started piano when I was five or six years old, um, which was six years before George Gershwin started to take piano lessons. Mm. So I should be twice as good as he, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but um, uh, as far as jazz piano goes, I, I never did study jazz. I became interested in jazz when I was in high school. It was sort of a, an identity thing. All my classmates were coming home and listening to American Bandstand, uh, you know, from, uh, um, Bobby, um, the guy in the Mouseketeers, um, uh, I can't remember, Bobby Rydell, uh, Elvis was becoming big, and uh, that, wa that music wasn't uh, uh, really appealing to me. My parents were, um, I, uh, my father was a minister, they wanted me to play hymns or classical music. So I had to find my own niche. Uh, I was, uh, we lived in Wisconsin Rapids. If I turn on the radio, I was likely to hear Frankie Yankovich or Cousin Fuzzy and, and his cousins, a lot of polka music. Um, but uh, in our church, we did have a parish worker who used to be a, a saloon singer before she, um, before she found the Lord, and she liked to talk about the days before she was saved, and she would bring her music with her. And uh, we would spend hours going through all of the old songs. Um, I'm in the mood for love. I'm, I'm through with love. Have you ever been lonely? And so on. Mm. So I begin to learn popular music. And then I begin to try to legitimize uh, some of my interests and went to the library and uh, uh, picked up an all clear channel radio station from New Orleans. Um, a program uh, that was broadcast from atop the Roosevelt Hotel, and that was my first exposure to jazz. Uh, when I went to college, I began to hear students playing jazz, and it wasn't until I was a graduate student in Madison in the middle 60s that I became serious about playing myself. Mm -hmm. in, in what ways do you find that it feels different or is different from sort of a technical point of view, playing jazz as opposed to playing Chopin, shall we say? Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, well, that's a good question because obviously it feels very different and I like the feeling, which was the reason <laughs> that uh, um, I deserted my, uh, my legit training and uh, stopped playing Chopin and began to play uh, popular music. Uh, certainly the, the freedom that um, jazz permits is, is an undeniable part of its uh, appeal. Uh, you have to become familiar with the form of songs and uh, the harmonies of songs, but once you have that down, uh, it's then possible to uh, express yourself in ways that are not always accessible to uh, the classical musician. You are, in effect, a, um, a co-composer uh, with the composer of the song. You're not um, interpreting the, uh, the music as much as creating it uh, along with the original composer. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's uh, it can be a scary, risk-free, uh, uh, not risk-free, but uh, risk-prone uh, kind of uh, adventure. But that's also its allure, I would say. Mm -hmm. What was what was jazz piano like it, it, the, at first as you began playing it? I mean, were you very good at it, and f did you feel natural within it right from the start, or did you? need to hit a few uh, rough spots musically and artistically first. Uh, I certainly didn't feel very very competent. It was 
extremely frustrating to begin with. I was not a natural, um, self-taught uh, genius uh, as George Gershwin was. Um, it required um, much trial and error, many defeats, a lot of discouragement, and then there's that day when you go to a jam session and you decide, um, well, I'm going to try it. I'm going to get up there and I'm going to try to sit in and hold my own with the other guys in the stand. And uh, if you were a newcomer, uh, some of the other musicians would recognize that, so they would make a point of calling off one of the d most difficult songs they could think of at an unplayable temple, let's mm. say uh, Cherokee, um, at, a, at a temple that was barely countable. And uh, also it has wicked chord changes and it goes from two flats to six sharps and you're supposed to be improvising on that. So those can be very daunting uh, experiences. Um, to a great extent, uh, jazz is a, um, an art form that is passed down orally instead of through, me uh, through method books. Uh, even though we've come a long way in terms of teaching jazz and uh, 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 publishing all sorts of uh, materials, to a great extent, uh, the uh, musician does have to have a good ear and has to be able to learn from listening to records. And I'd say that was the major part of my experience, mm -hmm. uh, listening to all of the other great pianists. And um, not just pianists, but uh, horn players. Piano players, I think, have always come a little bit after horn players. Uh, uh, some would say the first great jazz pianist was Earl Hines, and basically he was transcribing the music of um, Louis Armstrong to piano. And uh, the great first great modern jazz pianist, perhaps uh, Bud Powell, what he was doing was taking the musical ideas of, of Charlie Parker and expressing them on piano. Mm. Well, that brings up something that has always kind of intrigued me in this in this whole area, which is that, of course, you're right that a good jazz pianist has done lots and lots of listening and has kind of soaked in much of what already has been done. Uh, does a special does a, a special care have to be taken that what you do is not entirely derivative, entirely sort of almost plagiarized from what other people have done? How do you, how can you mm -hmm. make what you do? Uh, more entirely your own, or, or is that possible in, mm -hmm. in, in jazz? I think there, there is an understanding among most jazz musicians that it's not sufficient to simply play like Bird, uh, that's Charlie Parker, or to repeat the, uh, the ideas of other great musicians. On the one hand, uh, to be accepted and respected as a good jazz musician, you do need to reflect the history. You do need to show that you can handle that extremely difficult, uh, complex, melodic, and rhythmic uh, vocabulary. Um, on the other hand, if you're simply copying them, the other musicians for whom you are playing so much of the time are going to recognize it. And as you, as you say, they're probably going to diss you as being derivative. <laughs> So uh, musicians are always trying to uh, do something that hasn't been done before, trying to be cr uh, somewhat creative, uh, trying to be um, somewhat different. And uh, that's the way that uh, jazz continues to, uh, to, to grow and to be uh, innovate, innovative and develop into new areas. Mm -hmm. Some people have uh, probably heard you, uh, for instance, in the band shell playing with uh, John Bunick's big band, and other people have probably heard you playing in, in more intimate settings, uh, maybe in more of a trio kind of situation. Mm -hmm. How would you compare the experience of, of those two experiences? Is what you do within each of those uh, forms mm -hmm. uh, profoundly different? Uh, exceptionally so. 
um, maybe it's a little bit like a like a poet uh, when you are playing in a big band and it's your turn to solo. It's like uh, trying to uh, express your musical idea by writing a haiku, or maybe you get an entire chorus. That would be like writing a sonnet. Uh, <laughs> I like that. But if you're if you're playing um, in a smaller uh, context, which is, uh, I I would suggest for the for actually swinging and creating and expressing yourself is the, the ideal. Uh, you do have um, several choruses, sometimes as much time as you want to uh, develop your idea, to uh, try one strategy, and if that doesn't work, then to, uh, to try another one. Uh, so it leaves much more room for uh, trial and error and um, much room, more room for satisfying expression. Uh, there is something somewhat uh, artificial about playing in a large um, context where there are many musicians and uh, you have uh, a 16-bar chorus and, and uh, that's it. Uh, you, you, it's challenging. And uh, so I don't want to suggest that uh, uh, playing in the large band is something that I don't take seriously. In fact, in some respects, it's more challenging than playing in a, in a small trio. And more often than not, perhaps it's less satisfying because you're thinking, gee, why did I play that note when I could have played this note? Because mm. <laughs> mm. your window of opportunity is... Uh, well put. Yeah, yeah mm. right. Got rather, rather brief. How much of what you do, for instance, let's say on the on the the bandshell stage or wherever you're playing with uh, with your trio or something how much uh, of what you're playing is utterly spontaneous in the moment as opposed to how much uh, is has been sort of thought out or worked out ahead of time either in uh, rehearsal or 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 whenever uh because i think the 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 impression that most people in the audience mm -hmm. get is that much of jazz is absolutely in the moment mm -hmm. um, the sound of surprise is the title of a book by a noted jazz critic uh, Whitney Balliot uh, to com express that notion of jazz being uh, in the moment and uh, it it very much is um, but I think the the, the truth of of, uh, of the matter is that um, we're somewhat in between uh, a solo is not necessarily worked out in advance nor is it uh, extemporaneously uh, invented on the spot. Rather, what musicians have uh, is a treasure hoard, an arsenal of uh, cliches or formulas or licks, and we never know quite how we're going to arrange those licks in any given moment. Mm. And uh, so that part of it is, is prepared. It's somewhat like uh, I teach Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, and it's almost incredible to, um, uh, to, to try to understand that Homer was probably illiterate, and he did not write either of those works. He was like a jazz musician uh, working in the oral tradition, and uh, he was a bard who was reciting those poems. And so he had all of these licks and formulas that would be arranged in different ways every time that he would tell the story. And the versions that we have today are obviously simply one version of his telling of those very familiar stories. Hmm. We're talking with Sam Chell. Can you tell he's an English professor at Carthage <laughs> College? I, I knew that this would blend in uh, very nicely. Uh, but he wears his musician hat uh, on uh, Sunday afternoon, this Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock, 
when um, he joins a number of people from the Carthage Music Department for a concert that salutes George Gershwin on the occasion of his uh, 100th birthday. And we've been talking about uh, Sam Chell's career as a, a jazz pianist. You undoubtedly have heard him uh, at some point in southeastern Wisconsin uh, in, in one situation or another. And uh, Sunday afternoon will be another chance to uh, hear Sam Chell uh, at the piano. Well, we want to talk a little bit about uh, Mr. George Gershwin. Uh, is this somebody who you have followed with some uh, some interest over the years? I imagine so. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I think um, much of the interest in uh, George Gershwin was maybe uh, coincident with the uh, popularity of the long playing record in the 1950s because I know that that's when a lot of my classmates who also were taking piano um, picked up their Oscar Levant version of um, mm. Rhapsody in Blue, American in Paris, Concerto in F and so on. And uh, I read recently that uh, perhaps George Gershwin's music is the most frequently programmed music and performed of any American composer in the concert hall. But beyond that, uh, George Gershwin, uh, of course, wore many hats himself, a great popular songwriter, and, uh, and he covered all the bases, Tin Pan Alley, uh, Broadway, uh, Hollywood, and uh, I've been thinking a little bit about the importance of his popular songs compared to uh, the music of so many other great popular composers, uh, ranging from Jerome Kern to Irving Berlin to, uh, to Cole Porter. And I really do believe that George Gershwin's um, songs are more important to uh, jazz musicians than uh, the uh, songs of the other composers uh, are more often played, and there are probably some, um, uh, some, some good reasons for that. I bet that you uh, have treated with special delight the the treasure trove of Gershwin songs that are sort of coming to light now that uh, lay unknown for many, many years. I mean, when when old manuscripts kind of get dusted off or old film score manuscripts are discovered in a closet someplace. And uh, mm -hmm. I suppose that's part of the uh, appeal of all this as we approach his 100th birthday is he's a composer we're beginning to get to know mm -hmm. even better. Um, true, as, as, as much of a... Uh, archetypal romantic genius as George Gershwin is, there also is the man, the musician, who left an incredible legacy. And uh, some of the, uh, the songs that are coming to light uh, fully support uh, what we've already known about him through the songs that have become standards. Um, frankly, the standards, the familiar songs, give me enough uh, challenges to, to <laughs> occupy my time. But uh, recently, some of the more obscure songs, uh, the song um, Isn't It a Pity, um, has recently come to my attention. Uh, Shirley Horn sang it on a recent album, and uh, it's a beautiful melody and uh, very clever lyrics by Ira. He rhymes um, Heine with uh, China. Isn't it a pity that I'm sitting here uh, reading Heine while you're sailing off to China? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, George Gershwin, is, is, uh, his music is always full of um, surprises that uh, never cease to delight. Mm -hmm. As you uh, look at your, uh, your record collection that, that features Gershwin, um, 
who are the favorite artists you think that really managed to mm -hmm. capture Gershwin and, and, and stay true to him? Because don't you think sometimes uh, singers come along who don't seem to trust the material and sort of uh, overdo it or, uh, or, or play with it in ways that kind of compromise it a little bit? Uh, George would have uh, would have agreed you, with you, and, and for that reason, his his favorite singer was Fred Astaire. And uh, George, if he would have had his way, uh, would have had Fred Astaire singing all of his music. Uh, the music that was written for female voice, uh, that he always preferred to have uh, Ethel Merman sing. Now, he was not alone in that. Fred Astaire was the favorite singer of uh, Jerome Kern as well as uh, Irving Berlin. But the reason was that uh, Fred Astaire had, even though his range was only an octave and he didn't have great vocal projection, um, uh, his intonation was unquestionable and, of course, his uh, sense of time. And they knew that uh, he would not mess up their intentions. Um, but uh, as we know, um, Fred Astaire is, is not someone that we remember as a singer, and uh, uh, for posterity, he did not leave us that much uh, recorded work. So I would say that the, uh, the great singers who uh, have uh, done best by George Gershwin would be Ella Fitzgerald. Uh, certainly recommend her uh, Gershwin songbook. Um, Frank Sinatra, I've always considered um, the master storyteller when it comes to almost all of the major composers. But he tends to lean a little bit more to the um, erotically charged uh, Cole Porter. Uh, possibly Tony Bennett, I think, uh, has acquitted uh, himself um, more um, uh, saliently than Sinatra has when it comes to the music of George Gershwin. Hmm. Well, you mentioned Ethel Merman. We happen to have her in one of the uh, songs that uh, became one of her great signatures, uh, I Got Rhythm. And uh, as we talked to you about how you, you said Fred Astaire was uh, uh, a singer who... Uh, you could sort of count on in many ways. And I remember reading once that uh, Ethel Merman had really in some ways kind of a very workmanship idea of you go out there night after night and it's mm -hmm. your job and you and you just do it. And she wasn't a particularly artistic person in the sense right. of having to seek out new vistas. She got out there and did what she thought she had to do. And, and in certain songs by Gershwin, that's exactly what you need to do, is just get out there right. and deliver the thing. And, and be heard over the orchestra. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> she certainly had no problem with that. Uh, are you a fan of I Got Rhythm? And if so, why? Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, there are, there are two song forms in jazz. And jazz is about uh, learning the forms. Uh, the two song forms in jazz are the blues and I Got Rhythm. So when you're on a job, very frequently musicians will try to decide, what are we going to play next? And they might say, well, let's do a blues. Or they might say, let's do a rhythm tune. And there are s many, many songs that are based on the chord changes of George Gershwin's I Got Rhythm. Sometimes, though, uh, you may decide to simply to do George Gershwin's uh, I Got Rhythm. Uh, it is the classic 32-bar 
type one uh, AABA song with a with a bridge. Uh, next to the blues, it's uh, the second most uh, important song form in jazz, and it is probably the most important popular song um, in all of a jazz as a vehicle for improvisation. Incidentally, started out by playing the music of uh, an American in Paris. I don't know how well you recollect the uh, Vincent Minnelli movie uh, from the 1950s oh, of the same name, 50s of the same name, in which they collected so much of Gershwin's uh, music. And uh, there are two uh, moments in that film that really stand out in my memory. One is the moment early on in the movie when. Um, a, um, a singer does a parody by Ira Gershwin called uh, By Strauss. Oh, and, yes. And uh, the point there is that uh, Strauss's music is the best music. That's the true legitimate music, and uh, we don't have time for this American jazz. And then a little bit later in the music, significantly out in the streets, uh, Gene Kelly begins to sing I Got Rhythm, sing and dance I Got Rhythm, and he soon attracts an audience of uh, young kids. And he begins to make references to uh, Charlie Chaplin to Hopalong Cassidy, and I think what we see there is uh, the global significance of George Gershwin's music. It's uh, not just the nationalization of, of uh, American music um, that we see in Irving Berlin, but it's the internationalization of American jazz, American music, and uh, George Gershwin certainly brought it more respect, perhaps, than any other popular oh, composer. Yeah, yeah and that's, you're right. That's a beautiful picture. It, 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 mm -hmm. it shows us how irresistible his music is no matter what mm -hmm. what flag is flying over uh, where it's being uh, sung or performed. Mm -hmm. Let's listen to uh, Ethel Merman and what she does with I Got Rhythm. Maybe we should just quickly explain the thing about AABA. When we get to the familiar chorus of this song, we're going to hear her sing, I got rhythm, I got uh, music, I got my man who could ask for anything more. And the same music is repeated all over again with different words. I got Daisies, is it? In green pastures? I'm terrible uh, something. At I got yeah. something, something. Who could ask for anything more? So that's your second A. Mm -hmm. Then the music changes. New melody. Right. Mm -hmm. Old man trouble. I don't mind him. You won't find him round my door. Then we return to that first melody again. I got starlight, whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so there's your AABA, the standard form that uh, uh, shows up again and again mm -hmm. and again, but beautifully laid out here in, in I Got Rhythm. But I think it's preceded by an introduction that is not all that often heard. Of uh, so the verse. Okay. Right. And so we'll hear that first. And this is, again, Ethel Merman, a recording, I think, that dates all the way back to 1930 as we continue uh, the morning show here on WGTD. <laughs> Why shouldn't 
happy with my lot. How do I get that way? Look at what I've got. I got rhythm. I got music. I got my man who could ask for anything more. I got daisies in green pastures. I got my man who could ask for anything more. An old man's trouble. Say I don't mind him. Cause you won't find him round my door. great Ethel Merman, and that is so much fun. The great Gershwin song, I Got Rhythm, which of course he uh, treated in different ways. You can uh, hear recordings of George Gershwin himself playing it on the piano, and then he composed a piece for piano and orchestra, variations on I Got mm -hmm. Rhythm, that is also a, a real uh, fun, fun piece. It's clear that Gershwin, when he wrote his songs, did not think of them as carved in stone permanent entities so much as mm -hmm. as music to return to recyclable and, yeah and to treat in in, in different ways mm -hmm. what are what are some other songs by gershwin that are special favorites of yours and why uh, well during the recording we were just talking about swanee uh, um, I, that was his first um, big hit I believe he, he would have been a teenager when he composed that. Uh, Gershwin, incidentally, was the youngest Tin Pan Alley plugger. At the age of 15, he was on West 28th Street uh, playing his and other people's songs um, in the uh, music stores. As far as favorite uh, songs go, I Got Rhythm, uh, Lady Be Good, em Embraceable, You But Not For Me. Our love is here to stay. Fascinating rhythm. Uh, George is, in some respects, the most propuls propulsive rhythmic composer, uh, and he also writes songs that are uh, explicitly about rhythm, and rhythm is in the title of the songs. And of course, uh, all the material from Porgy and Bess is just uh, gorgeous, and a, a number of jazz artists have picked up on that, including uh, Miles Davis, who released what has become a classic album. Uh, Miles Davis uh, plays Porgy and Bess uh, with arrangements by the uh, great orchestrator Gil Evans. Uh, so those are some of the Gershwin songs that, that come to mind. 
and uh, some of the songs with um, Ira's clever lyrics, um, uh, wonderful, marvelous, and it goes, some of the verses, he takes words like iniquitous, and it becomes sniquitous, and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, speaking of the movie, An American in Paris, and correct me if I'm remembering this incorrectly, but my favorite moment from that movie is Gene Kelly out in the street singing wonderful with, who is it? Um, I'm Leslie, Leslie Caron, uh, with somebody, with somebody else. I can't remember who it is, and they end up kind of almost a block apart, singing to each other. Mm, and mm. I, I don't, I don't know that I ever fully appreciated that that song until that moment. The just mm -hmm. the sheer exuberance. It's like it just blows down yes. every everything else, and right. uh, that's just, just incredible. Uh, that's a hallmark of uh, Gushwin's music. It's uh, it's so sparkling and and zestful, uh, happy, optimistic, full of life. Uh, more so than the other composers. When we think about uh, Kern, there's a sentimentality. Harold Arland, uh, bl the blues, uh, Cole Porter. So often the disillusionment, the cynicism, but mm -hmm. uh, uh, not with the uh, the Gershwin brothers. Mm -hmm. What are you going to be playing on uh, Sunday's concert, and and how did you decide? <laughs> I mean, where do you where do you start and where do you stop? <laughs> I haven't finalized that decision. In part, I've, I've decided by uh, asking you what songs are already in the program and uh, what you've already got covered, and what's uh, I'll be happy to take what's left because if it's by Gershwin, it's bound to be to be good. Uh, it it looks like we'll be doing uh, some of the songs that I just mentioned uh, from among those. Uh, uh, perhaps uh, uh, Embraceable You But Not For Me, uh, Someone To Watch Over Me, A Foggy Day in London Town. Uh, and What is your treatment uh, likely to be with, with those? I mean, are we going to be treated to kind of a sort of mini rhapsodies where you sort of take off on each of these songs? Or uh, what, do, what do you plan to do with them? Oh, uh, no, we're not going to be quite that uh, creative and, and uh, free with the songs. We certainly are going to respect uh, the melody and uh, the song form. And uh, I said we, I guess this is the first time I've indicated that uh, I, I don't plan to uh, do a solo flight in this one. I've um, asked a uh, musical colleague, uh, a fine guitarist, Al Clausen, who is the uh, uh, musical director at Walden School in Racine, um, I've asked Al to uh, accompany me. Hmm. Uh, so we'll be doing some pretty much instant arrangements. I plan to call him on the phone and we'll talk through what, we, what we're going to do and uh, who's going to play when as much as we can. Um, so our, uh, our goal will, will be to uh, uh, maintain fidelity to uh, Gershwin's melodies and then to use them as, a, as the basis for improvisation. Uh, if it's an up-tempo tune, you realize that you uh, can improvise more choruses than if it's a slow tune. So uh, ah. Lady Be Good, we might decide, well, let's take several choruses each and uh, Embraceable You, maybe just one chorus. Huh. Mm -hmm. Well, we look forward to uh, your contribution to what I, what I think is going to be a concert that people will really enjoy. We should maybe just recap quickly. It's a concert that's going to uh, include uh, Sam Chell and his uh, colleague um, Al Clausen in several Gershwin songs. Just about every choir on the campus of Carthage College is going to be uh, a part of this concert, performing excerpts from something called a Gershwin portrait by uh, a very well-known arranger who uh, actually originally hails from Kenosha, Mac Huff. 
who's really put together a, a very nice suite, and they look at different facets of Gershwin's output as a uh, composer. There's one section called Fascinating Rhythm uh, that will feature the Carthage Choir, another called the Gershwin Swing Set that will feature Carthage's uh, Swing Choir. Uh, another another portion of it that that uh, of this uh, Gershwin portrait is called Gershwin at the Opera, and not surprisingly features some excerpts from Porgy and Bess. And there'll be two things from that uh, that will be sung: uh, the aria Summertime, and then My Man's Gone Now, and that'll be sung uh, in a very fine arrangement um, by Carthage's. Uh, uh, chapel Choir. The Carthage Community Chorus actually bears the brunt of, of a, a lot of the work for Sunday's concert. They're going to be probably singing more than anybody, and they've been at work since uh, August on uh, long stretches of the Gershwin portrait. So it should be a fun way to examine Gershwin from a, a number of, of different angles, and we hope that you can join us if you, if you possibly can. Of course, Sam, one of the things about George Gershwin's story that uh, is worth remembering and talking about is his early death at the age of, what was it, 37 or 38? Uh, 38. 38 years old. And um, what that means in the way that we look at George Gershwin now. Mm -hmm. uh, earlier I made a reference to him as being kind of a m mythical figure, the, uh, the archetypal romantic genius. And, uh, of course, his early death... Uh, helps him to qualify uh, for that definition. Someone who lived fast, whose whole life in music is characterized by a certain spirit of restlessness and uh, died uh, prematurely. And I th think that has uh, become part of the, the Gershwin uh, allure, uh, no, unquestionably, but it shouldn't cause us to overlook the fact that um, in those 38 years he uh, he left behind uh, an incredible uh, legacy uh, th that uh, perhaps is as impressive as that of any uh, American composer of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. What about his brother Ira? Do you feel like Ira has ever been given really sufficient credit for the work that uh, he did in uh, writing the lyrics for so many of the great Gershwin songs? I mean, when we talk about Gershwin songs, we're almost never talking about yeah. Ira Gershwin is no. one half of that team in most mm -hmm. cases. Uh, no, he hasn't been given sufficient credit. Uh, and that is frequently true, though. Um, the lyricist tends to be overlooked. I'm not sure that uh, Lorenz Hart, who, who I'm almost tempted to say is my favorite 20th century composer has been mm. given sufficient credit for his uh, work with uh, Richard Rogers, and uh, the same uh, might be true of other great lyricists such as uh, Johnny Mercer. Um, he, Ira was a totally different uh, character from George, and yet they worked so well together. Uh, George was, uh, um, I don't want to use the word uh, playboy, but he, uh, he went round the clock uh, from one social event, one party to another. Uh, he, would, he would sit at the piano all night long playing his music and the music of other people. Ira preferred to um, go to the racetrack, smoke cigars, work uh, crossword puzzles. Uh, play cards and uh, so he uh, was a far more sedentary uh, kind of um, individual for whom life was was play um, for George it was an it was an adventure 
Uh, Ira was the um, the brighter of the boys, the parents thought, and uh, he, he was the one that the parents originally had decided would, uh, would go into music. Uh, but when George, at the age of 10, sat down and started playing the piano like a pro, uh, not having ever had a single lesson, they realized uh, who was going to be the musician in the, in the family. Mm. But um, Ira did go on to uh, have a career after uh, the death of George. Um, let's see, he was the uh, lyricist for Kurt Weill, uh, Lady in the Dark. Mm, he was also right. the lyricist for Harold Arlen uh, in um, A Star is Born, the Judy Garland, James Mason movie. Uh, and he wrote uh, one, of the, uh, one of the best books on song lyrics. Uh, and uh, one of the points that um, he makes, he's quoted as saying that any, um, any resemblance between a, a popular song lyric and genuine poetry is purely accidental. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, that sounds like uh, this kind of mm -hmm. thing he would say. Mm -hmm. It's striking just to look at pictures of George and Ira and, and yeah. just mm -hmm. in physical appearance how different they yes. are. Yeah. The one who's a, you know, kind of a bespeckled you know, librarian, maybe, exactly. if you looked at him, and then Gershwin, this dashing, muscular, uh, charismatic figure. And, mm -hmm. and like you said, though, the two worked uh, brilliantly together. Yes, yes. Uh, I think one of the better um, Hollywood movies um, about um, a, uh, an American composer is Rhapsody in Blue. It stars um, uh, Alan Alda's father, what's his first name, um, oh, as, yeah. um, as George. It, yeah, um, um, I'm going blank. Uh, Is it Robert Alda? Oh, I believe that's yeah. it, uh, Robert Alda, yes. And uh, uh, it, uh, it enables you to uh, visualize um, George's uh, appearance and uh, its striking contrast with his brother, Ira. And it's, it's actually quite accurate to the circumstances of his life. And uh, there are extended stretches of uh, George's music, including uh, American in Paris, Concerto and F, Rhapsody in Blue, which is not always the case in these uh, film bios. Mm. Little snips and so on. Yeah, that's, that's what we usually get. Mm. Right. Or we get uh, Cary Grant playing Cole Porter, and uh, <laughs> it just doesn't work. <laughs> not at all. Uh -huh. Well, I'm afraid all we have uh, time for it as, uh, as our interview draws to a close is basically a snip of what really we should at least mention and that is the great work Rhapsody in Blue which uh, mm -hmm. uh, what did what did one writer say uh, made a lady out of jazz or something and mm -hmm. brought jazz into the concert hall in a way that had never mm -hmm. been before your thoughts on Rhapsody in Blue uh, it was a uh, premiered uh, with George at the piano in 1924 uh, uh, Whiteman had uh, asked uh, Gershwin to uh, compose such a work. He agreed. He put it off, and then three weeks before the concert, he realized he had this assignment due. Yeah, <laughs> so I think he saw an ad in the paper or something. Yeah, it reminded oh, him. Yeah, really going to happen. So uh, he composed it in three weeks and didn't have time to compose all of it. So um, parts of Rhapsody in Blue and its uh, its uh, introduction were actually improvised by George uh, at at the piano, and uh, as you say it. It did bring jazz into the concert hall. It brought uh, a new respectability to the music, uh, even though it's not exactly jazz, but it definitely made people aware of uh, uh, the rhythms and the tonal colors, the blue notes of jazz, right from that very opening clarinet solo. Mm. Well, we're going to hear, uh, actually, the closing measures of the work in the original orchestration from when this piece was first played uh, on Lincoln's birthday, 1924, in Aeolian Hall. Uh, off of a two-CD set that recreates that entire Paul Whiteman concert. And with it, we also bring to a close what has really been an enjoyable 
time for me and uh, I hope for you as well and uh, Sam I promise it'll not be another 12 years before we bring you back on the morning show uh, you get to pick your favorite uh, composer to talk about oh. next time and we will have you back we'll do Duke Duke Ellington next time it's a deal Duke Ellington <laughs> and Sam Chell will be with us next time on the morning show Sam uh, always a pleasure thank you for making time for us on the morning show thank you Sam Chell an English professor at uh, Carthage College and uh, one of the uh, musicians that you can enjoy Sunday afternoon at four o'clock at Carthage's Seabrook Chapel in a special uh, gala concert uh, honoring George Gershwin on his 100th birthday. The concert by George, 4 o'clock, Siebert Chapel. Admission is free. Come and enjoy music of one of America's most important and gifted composers. Now the final measures of his Rhapsody in Blue. <laughs>